0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. This is, this is, in 2017, when you see stories like this, I guess I shouldn't be surprised anymore by what's going on. Uh, A few days ago, conservative leadership candidate Brad Trust uh, was vocal in regards to Pride parades. Uh, His campaign manager said, well, you got to know that Brad just doesn't, he's not comfortable with that gay thing, you know. That's, that's, yeah, that's what he said. Then, at an editorial board meeting uh, just the other day, a uh, conservative leader, that's uh, Jason Kenney, the Alberta conservative leader now, uh, says parents have a right to know what's going on with their kids in the schools unless the parents are abusive. So he thinks if kids uh, sign up and attend Gay-Straight Alliance uh, programs in schools, that the parents need to be told about that. Now that's got quite a few people upset about this. You've got to wonder where these guys' heads are these days let me ask Theo Sellis about that. Registered Family Therapist and the President of Integrity Works. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Theo, good to have you back on the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm well. I'm well. Uh, I, I just, in my opening comments, just said I'm, I guess we shouldn't be consir- or sh- surprised by some of the stuff that we're hearing these days. Uh, I, I would think that we're a little more enlightened, uh, but uh, clearly some people are still hanging on to some biases and, and some misinformation, I think.
2: Yeah,
1: well, and it's always hard to know why a politician says what they do. I mean, do they really believe that, or are they just speaking to an audience and they figure that's the thing to say to that particular audience uh, in order to stay elected or be elected? So it's a little hard to tell. But uh, that idea is a terrible idea. Like, uh, forget about where. Yeah, I, I don't want.
0: Yeah, the moment. politics is the politics. We can't yeah. do much about that except, you know, ignore them and not vote for them or whatever yeah, the case uh, might be. Right, but right this idea. This idea of outing kids that go to gay straight alliance meetings—what's the? What well, come on?
1: That's a that's a really scary one, and and I, I wonder if he also thinks that if um you know if students sign up for the chess club, whether the parents are required to be notified too, because parents have a right to know whether or not kids should be like are playing chess. You know, like I mean, I'm pretty sure that it comes from this idea that there's something wrong again still with being gay and. And, and hang around with gay people, other gay people, who knows what kind of ideas that would have. Well, yeah, that, that seems I mean, to what, be... Are they going to turn the whole population gay or something? Well, I'd say you but, go
0: to a meeting, you know what they're going to do to you.
1: Right, they're going to, like, organize and maybe convince you, maybe you're not really sure if you are gay, and you're going to go to a meeting, and then all of a sudden you're going to turn gay, and then what will what, then happen? The whole family will end up falling apart. But the, the problem with, I mean, the big problem with that is that uh, these places are important to have these safe places are important to have for the very fact that there are people like this guy around who says these kind of things they need to have safe places around because they need to have at least one place where they can be themselves and talk about what's going on with them and about all the issues that they're experiencing from people like that uh, in a safe way because if they are, some of these people, some of these kids are, are outed to their parents. It could end up being really bad in terms of the abuse that they could take. There's a reason why maybe they are looking to have other people be able to talk and sort out how they're doing, why they need that kind of support, because of the fact that they're being harmed, discriminated against, not accepted uh, for who they are. And, and it's a, just a terrible, just a terrible idea to say, well, we need to report on them, not only for their safety, but it also just speaks again to the underlying message with, is that there's something wrong with these people, and we should try to shut them down. And if they're going to make that choice, uh, well, then their parents need to know, because maybe their parents could do something about it, you know?
0: I, I wish we lived in a society, Theo, where people could be open and honest about uh, about their feelings, about who they love, and, 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 and things of that nature. But, you know, we're not. As a matter of fact, there are people in all walks of life uh, who are gay, but for one reason or another don't feel as if they can talk about that, don't feel as if they can admit to it. Uh, and some of them are in politics, some of them are in public life, because uh, for in their mind anyway, we're not there yet where that acceptance is going to be forthcoming. So who are we to tell kids that feel as if as if they want to talk to somebody about this that uh, we have to out them if that's what they're going to go and do?
1: Well, and it's not only that, you know, like there, there are a lot of people who are gay who um, may not necessarily fear being uh, having any repercussions. Maybe they're confident that, that they'll be find because they have a good support system. But why should they feel a need to declare it? Like who? Why? Why? Why does anyone have a need to somehow say what their sexual orientation is uh, to anyone? Like when, since when is that a requirement about anybody? Whether they're gay, straight, bi, whatever. That like why is there an expectation that somehow it needs to be declared in order to have some kind of Public approval vote or something like it's none of our business. None, it's none of anyone's business other than the people we happen to choose to share ourselves with intimately. What sexual orientation there? We don't. We don't demand. Uh, people to declare what kind of music they they enjoy. They, we don't demand them talk extensively or share what their careers are. We don't demand uh, people justify the foods that they eat. We should stop getting. We should get over this idea that somehow we're entitled to know something about another person's sexual orientation in order to make some kind of judgment about whether or not it's okay.
0: <laughs> that's that's the headspace I guess that I'm having trouble coming to grips with. Here is that it, it, it's nobody's damn business. So why do these people even bring this up? Why is this even an issue uh, about gay-straight alliances, about outing people? Uh, it, it, it's, it stinks really, and, and and it shows about not only negative attitudes and incorrect attitudes about this, but, but the, now I'm seeing it, and I, I don't know if you saw some of the responses to this on social media, where now there's some people that are saying, well, well then maybe we need to out some of these people that are making all these criticisms, because there have been examples where people that are the most critical of this are actually gay themselves and they're doing this as a shield. And that's yeah. wrong. You don't, you don't fling the same sort of stuff that got flung at you and think, well, that's okay. It's not okay.
1: Yeah, I, you know, and, and you probably can understand why they'd be tempted to do that because of you know them trying to fight back or something or take power back or maybe uh, send a message that says, look, if you're on us, we're going to get on you, so back off. I mean, you can kind of understand the need for that, the, the desire for that. But in the long run, I don't think it really helps. I think, I think if something is wrong, you just don't do it. And uh, the more you more you do it back, the more it uh, in sort of invites a response like that. You know, I, I think it's a really, as easy as it is for, for us, you and I, to say, oh, we should take the high road. I know that's tough, but I think in the long run, that that's, you know, just just consistently sending a message that says, um, you know, it's not of anyone's business, who or what, who, who, I, who I sleep with, who, who I'm attracted to, what I do. Uh, that's not any of your business. It's not a, you know, it's not a moral issue. You need to get over this idea that, it 's either a moral issue or you're using the moral issue as an excuse to take out your hostility because there's lots of research that shows that that people who are homophobic have other issues besides homophobia in terms of their personality that they tend to already be more hostile they tend to be more aggressive and more angry um, and so you know under oftentimes under the guise of well it's a moral issue and we have to you know put people in place or we have to protect children uh, it's really just an excuse to take out their uh, kind of like their their own hostility and their own anger on the vulnerable population. It's just uh, another form of bullying
0: that way. And, and maybe we need to put this in perspective too, because I mean, we heard during the elections down in the states last year, not just for the presidential election, but the gover- gubernatorial and, and state elections, etc. Uh, quite a few people in many jurisdictions down in the states that that, that brought the, the, the whole idea about gay rights back in. Uh, the bathroom law, of course, in South Carolina just got repealed yesterday. I mean, yeah. Uh, which is good news, obviously, but it, it's still in place in many other jurisdictions. There are still some places that are passing legislation that uh, that you have to turn gay people straight, that, you know, mm-hmm. they put them in this course. We can do that to this conversion therapy sort of an idea. That's still out there, and there's still a lot of people that are believers in that, Theo.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's really, I, I just feel, you know, you know, really sad about that, obviously because of the people who are being directly harmed with that, but also just about that kind of ongoing mentality that, you know that w- so much fascination seems to be about another human being uh their their sexuality uh, you know it's it's just there's so many more there's so many more important causes to take up uh legitimate causes of you know of poverty and um uh for instance if you really want to make a difference in the world why not direct your energy towards um you know standing up for the rights of children who are being uh, abused or you know put some effort in towards You know, making sure that uh, the homeless, people who are homeless, have a safe place to sleep. I mean, why not direct your energy if if you have so much verb? Because I see so much passion, and I see so much verb, so much intensity. Uh, Yeah, okay, well, I have that. You really think you need to make a difference. Why don't you find a legitimate cause and just leave other people's sexuality to themselves?
0: Just to follow his rationale for a second, as as twisted as it seems to me and and to you, uh, Kenny goes on to say here, Parents have a right to know what's going on with their kids in schools unless the parents are abusive. (laughs) <laughs> who makes the determination, Theo, as to who's abusive and who isn't? Isn't that in the eye of the I, – I mean, obviously, sometimes it's, it's flagrant. But, you know, there's also a, 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 a thought process out there that says, well, parents aren't abusive until they become abusive. In other words, this could be a trigger for somebody to say, you're what? And, and who knows what's going to happen after that.
1: Yeah, and to me, that's just one of those after-the-fact sort of. Oh, right, there might be some sort of complexities to this. So I'll throw in that sentence as a kind of like a cover to show that I have thought about the issue more clearly than obviously I haven't. Um, I mean, who? How do you know? How do you know ahead of time? Like, who? What school official is going to know first of all whether or not a parent is abusive? How, how are they going to find that out? You know, there's no way of knowing that. And besides that, there's a lot of ways of being abusive that aren't that dramatic. You know, just, just because the kid does not come to school with a bloody nose and a you know a, a purple eye doesn't mean that kid isn't being harmed by their parents' attitudes towards them. It doesn't mean that a kid who would come home after the parents have, been found, have found out that they joined this club won't, for instance, encounter the parents just shunning them. Like, just saying, you're not part of the... And I've heard this so many times. You know, you are not my son unless you get your act together and stop feeling that way. So... Yeah, they're not going to be necessarily hitting the kid, but how, what are the impacts of having your, the family love denied you uh, because now you no longer fit into what the established requirement is based on their particular ideas of morality or sexuality. So, so what then? So now you have a kid who is not going to be welcomed in the home, is going to be shunned in the family. Uh, you know, we'll still put a roof over your head because we're obligated to his parents, uh, but you are not one of us until you smarten up and stop being so gay. Um, that's that's incredibly painful and it leads to all kinds of issues. Not to least of the fact, of course, people kill themselves because of that. So it's just a it's just a stupid, thoughtless idea that he's had.
0: Are these? kids, I remember the controversy. I think you and I talked about this some years ago about the implementation of gay-straight alliances uh, in school boards, etc. And I know it was a very controversial piece of legislation here in Ontario some time ago. And uh, but it seems to be at least uh, they're in place in most situations anyway. Although I'm getting mixed messages from some people about just how effective they are. What are you, what are you hearing? What's your read on what's gone on so far?
2: Well,
1: you know what I, I guess it terms guess you have to ask yourself, like, in what way are you measuring effectiveness? And so, is it effective in terms of like a larger social kind of openness towards uh, people of different sexualities? Um, I think it's part of the. I think it's part of the picture. I mean, you can't. This is one of the problems when people evaluate a single uh, initiative. They look at the larger picture and then they try to see whether or not they can judge the single initiative based on what the whole picture is changing. And there's a lot of issues that go into this idea of of people being able to be safe and be cared for no matter who they happen to love. Um, so it's kind of hard to see that huge change. But I can tell you that it makes the lives of the individual people who are members of this club A whole heck of a lot better Uh, and so uh, if we look at effectiveness and keeping one child safe at a time I'm gonna say that it really does a lot of good and I think it also does the other thing which is that it creates a foothold within the school for instance if you have a gay straight alliance in a school it creates a foothold there's a presence when I walk through the streets of my university or the colleges where I teach there's an office and there it is and there's that room there's a big there's a big sign and there's a big all these posters and, and it's a presence uh, it's not something to just be, oh, it happens to other people. It's like real. It's part of people's lives. And so the more we sort of incorporate into our lives and has a presence, the more we're going to be open to having more dialogue and more likely to think that this part of regular life as opposed to some sort of dark thing that happens behind alleys or something like this. You know, those people, those people are gay, but we don't have them here. So it creates a, a presence. And I think that foothold is important because the entire school really should be a gay-straight alliance. Uh, and so if we start one building one student at a time, one office at a time, then maybe at some point in time the entire school will be that way. So I think it's really important that we have these places.
0: How difficult it is for a, a young student to walk through that door?
1: You know, I, I think it, it really depends, but uh, but I think that there's that kind of like a barrier oftentimes. I talk to my clients and they talk about it being a big step to reach out because as much as they've heard it's a safe place, they're still worried what if some someone sees them? Like what if someone sees them going to that office? And so uh, you know, like, what what will happen? And generally speaking, universities and colleges, they're they're becoming really safe places. Now I'm not so entirely sure if that's the case in high schools 'cause I still hear a lot of blowback from my clients who are, are are trying to feel safe in high schools. But for sure, colleges and universities, it seems to be, you know, like pretty casual. People wander in and out. It's uh, pretty nice and open. So uh if there's hope it gives 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 people hope that um that they can uh, find places with people who who will not look at them. I mean, uh, people. <laughs> I don't know what people think goes on in these clubs, but generally speaking, they sit around and, you know, eat pizza and talk about movies and just hang out. They don't plot the overthrow of some established morality or anything. This It's just a place where they can hang out with people who don't even necessarily see them based on their sexuality. It's just a relief to be seen as a person, you know, and that's awesome. Imagine what it would be like for you and I, which is, to not have a place where people wouldn't immediately think about us in terms of our sexuality and make some judgment, but just kind of see us as Bill and Theo, hang out and, you know, talk about sports, eat pizza, bitch about the 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 props. It's a nice place just so we can be ourselves.
0: Theo Salas, uh, good to have you back on the program. Uh, of course, uh, go to the uh, website Integrity Works. There's a lot of great stuff on there and some great links, by the way, to a lot of the stuff we talk about here. Have a great weekend, Theo. Thanks for the time today.
1: Yeah, take care, Bill. It was nice talking
0: to you. You too.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: Some other problems we want to talk about here, too, including uh, the housing problems we have in right here. The uh, finance minister here in the province of Ontario, Charles Souza, uh, and Premier Kathleen Wynne here both said that uh, in uh, next month's budget, uh, they're going to be proposing some ideas to try to help out with the red-hot housing market here. Pricing, affordability, a number of things like this. What should they be thinking about? Well, let's ask Tim Hudak. Tim, of course, is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, and he joins us here in studio. Good to see you today.
3: Well, good to see you. Thanks for being back on the program. Live and in studio uh,
0: live in the studio. This has been years since you've been live. You're a busy guy.
3: You look younger than the last time <laughs> I saw you, what's the secret? <laughs> it's the lighting in
0: here. That's what does it. <laughs> Uh, I know, I, f- I appreciate you coming in. I know there's some traffic problems as you uh, rolled in from Toronto today, too. But uh, uh, we want to talk about this because uh, you and I had a phone conversation about this a few weeks ago. Uh, now it's imminent with uh, Minister Souza uh, suggesting that he's going to try to do some things in there. So some things I'd like to see, uh, some things you'd like to see the government introduce right now. And I think there's a couple of things on your list of saying don't do this, too. Let's talk about that. Yeah,
3: you bet. So we uh, anticipate a provincial budget. I think this is the date. Was it the 27th of April? Yeah, I so think so, yeah. So we've been pushing to make sure that affordable homeownership is one of the top items in the agenda, because a lot of people, like you know you and I, Bill, we probably were able to get our first home in our in our 20s or early 30s. That's an increasing challenge for the millennial generation. And the- I go back to the 19% mortgage rates. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, we don't quite have <laughs> that. But, um, but home ownership, right? So we've got a lot of people listening to CHML who are still stuck at mom and dad's house or a shoebox rental. They want to get a place of their own. So we've had meetings with Premier Wynn and Finance Minister Sousa and the other two parties as well to say we need to bring more homes onto the market. We need to have more choice out there for families or recent graduates that, you know, landed a good job and are looking for a home. Cuz right now we get a lot more buyers. That's a good thing. Yeah. But we have a lot fewer properties in the Hamilton area for sale. And when you have more people bidding for fewer houses, prices are going up. But Some of the things that have been proposed,
0: and we talked about this when the federal budget was coming down, uh, there was the idea of of this capital gains tax increase that they talked about doing. Uh, I've got some reservations about that. What are your thoughts on it?
3: You always have to, I mean, having spent 21 years there at Queen's Park, like I get it, you're getting near an election campaign off and there can be a knee-jerk reaction. You throw something out there that might be good in the short term for political points, but long-term damaging. And we don't want to discourage new housing stock from coming on board by increasing housing prices. I worry about that. They're looking at dramatically increased rent controls for properties that are currently not rent controlled. The worry about that is there may be somebody who's gonna build new houses to make some money out of that and put more supply in the marketplace. So you gotta be very careful. Any decision you make in the housing market needs to be based on good, strong evidence and the facts on the ground. And one fact that's absolutely clear, listings are down, supply is down, buyers are up, don't lose sight of the ball, that we need to add more homes, including detached family homes into the marketplace, not all downtown condos.
0: Well, let me give you an example. It's, you know, Instead of dealing with this in the abstract, because people think capital gains tax, well, what's the big deal about that? The proposal that uh, that some people are looking at here in Ontario now, Tim, and I guess they're pressuring Minister Sousa to do this, is if uh, if it's your principal residence, I guess you could be exempted. That's one of the proposals. But if you buy a second property, you're going to get taxed through the nose for this. Uh, it, I, I always have a problem when governments try to control something by jacking up taxes. And I'm figuring that's that's messing around with the market. I mean, there are people, for instance, if you, if you live here in Hamilton, you want to buy a place in Muskoka for the summertime. You're going to get taxed on that aren't? If, if that's being the case. That's is that really the way to try to control the market and
3: cro- control pricing? Yeah, I'm very worried about that. I mean, that means taxing the family cottage, yeah. as you said, or if you want to buy another place and have a rental income as a source of income or retirement, you know, increasing the taxes uh, dramatically on that. May actually discourage more housing stock from coming in the marketplace It can also take away you know the livelihood of some middle class families that saw that real estate for part of financing their retirement there 's another element to
0: this uh, again that 's been thrown out there uh, that, that I, I I know a lot of people have got a problem with this, and this is this idea about this foreign investment tax now this is something that was born in British Columbia, and I think there was probably some legitimate reasoning for that, because uh, when they did study what was happening in the BC market, yeah there were a lot of offshore people that were simply buying large globs of of real
3: estate, especially in downtown Vancouver. I don't think that's happening in Ontario, is it? I'm not seeing that, and the problem I've, I've learned in this industry, having just been at the helm of the Ontario Real Estate Association for just over three months, there's not really a good solid collection of data. So the direct answer is, we're not sure, and it may be more in Toronto, less in Hamilton, less in Niagara, whatever. Before a doctor would do surgery, he would do an x-ray, right? or she would do a CAT scan. So you got to make sure you've got the data before you bring in a brand new tax. I'll give you an example. So Deb and I bought a house in in Toronto. That's where my work is. We were part of that bidding circus, and then somebody said, well, there's all these foreign buyers buying it. And I said, how do you know they're foreign buyers? Well, they're Chinese. Well, for goodness sakes, Canadians. It's a <laughs> Chinese background. You can't jump to that assumption. Make sure you got the facts. It may have been from Markham and not from Macau, right? And again,
0: with incomplete data like that, you have to wonder about what are the long term ramifications to the market going to be if you do do something like that. I mean, because if all of a sudden you stall the market like that, I mean, you don't want to go to the other
3: extreme, do you, Tim? No, this is the big worry, right? Like if government does a, that's why we were pushing for increasing housing supply and give people more choices. You want to live in a condo when you're in your 20s or in retirement, great. You want to have a family home when the kids come along, great. Give us a good variety of options here in the Hamilton Burlington marketplace. You should always use a good realtor who knows the neighborhood to make sure you're making a wise investment. But the bottom line here is if you intervene in the marketplace too dramatically, the risk is, like we saw in the 1970s with government intervention, then people lose value in your homes. So you're near retirement, you want to sell your home and downsize, you could lose a dramatic value in your home. You've got to make decisions in government based on the facts. There's nothing more sensitive than if you're robbing somebody of the equity in their home through too much government intervention. And again, for some people that are trying to do this analysis, uh, they're looking at uh,
0: another element of this, too, and saying, well, people that are buying real estate properties and flipping them, uh, they're the bad people. They're the ones that are driving up prices. And, and I'm not so sure that's true. I, I know, as a matter of fact, some people that actually do that for a living. They buy a property. They fix it up and they sell it. That's how they make their living. They're not bad people. I don't think they're intentionally driving up the market. That's a, it's it's simply
3: responding to the market. Yeah, again, it's why you need to make sure. And, and yeah, maybe supply. Maybe they're expanding the house, so it's more yeah. of a family home, or it was a rundown place. that so was falling apart. So always make sure that you have have good data before you jump to these conclusions. I'll give you another example in the foreign tax. Like you're, we're attracting a lot of foreign students who want to go to McMaster, for example. Or you may have a foreign doctor that she's trained in China and she's coming to work at McMaster Children's Hospital. Do you really want to nail them with a big tax increase and say don't come into Ontario? So you really because be- they'd be they'd be vulnerable to that, wouldn't they? Well, sure. And that's what happened in British Columbia. People who are coming there to work, to go to university, to work at a hospital or a scientist or whatever, you do want to attract top talent. That's how we built the country. So if you're going after speculators, look, if there's somebody who's speculating they buy a property, they leave it empty, grass is growing in the neighborhood, look, then people are sympathetic. They say, well, you're taking housing out of the marketplace. But if you're going to slap down people who simply want to come to Canada that are immigrants or coming here to work because they're highly valued, productive individuals, I am very wary of us nailing them for the big tax increase and staying, get out of here.
0: Well, and there's where stats come in in a situation like this. I mean, you see, and you know from your political life, what's happening here in Hamilton right now uh, you've got the Innovation Factory, you've got research and development going on at McMaster at, at, uh, at the Children's Hospital there. You've got the Freinhofer Institute, which is going to be moving in just down the road from us here. People from outside this country are coming in here to work and live and and all of a sudden we're going to say, well, you're a foreign owner now. You're going to get taxed on this. I,
3: that's going to discourage people, and and not just people, but I would think businesses from setting up here. Yeah, you got it. L- listen, Bill, I mean, coming from down the highway, I'm born and raised in the Niagara Peninsula, having the honor of representing parts of Upper Stony Creek and Glamrock mm-hmm. for some time. Like I'm excited about what's happening in Hamilton. It's getting some great press. A lot of people want to move here and live here. Better connections to the GTA via GO. You just mentioned a whole list of the innovative, you know, high-tech type jobs that are coming in. This is all very good things. We've got a new generation of millennials who want to own a home and get out of mom and dad's garage, all that. So let's make sure we have the housing supply to welcome them and help them become homeowners as opposed to trying to set up artificial barriers, new taxes, or limiting housing development.
0: Okay, so as you've had those discussions with the Premier and the Minister of Finance, uh, Mr. Souza, uh, what are you suggesting? What, what are the Real uh, real Estate Board looking to do here? What can the government do to increase stock? Which is, as you say, this is really simple, simply supply and demand, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and um, listen, I was talking to a, a builder uh, on the drive uh, down here this morning, and I apologize, getting in there a uh, bit behind schedule with the weather. but. You know, he said that what they're trying to do is impose a, a one-size-fits-all sort of Toronto-based planning on Hamilton and area. So they want everything to look like, you know, Young and Bluer downtown Toronto, which is great for Young and Bluer, but not so much if you can put more housing in the mountain, for example, or expand to Ancaster. Told me that in Cayuga, I think they only had seven houses for sale at a particular time right now. So when you're trying to force a one-size-fits-all straight jacket on Hamilton, that's limiting building potential Outside of the city area, and any good economy is going to have balance between the suburbs and the urban area.
0: Well, and you saw that uh, when you were in the
3: last riding that you represented. I mean, you know, something that's happening on Upper Stony Creek is not happening in Font Hill. Yeah, but, um, that's exactly right. And you're seeing a phenomenon, too, because there does come a time in life, right? We're in our 20s, we don't mind a smaller space or living up, but you get married and these little things start, you know, popping up called children. And often <laughs> it's a phenomenon. I don't know if we've quite figured it out, but it keeps happening. And then kids, you know, there tends to be a time in life where you want to have a backyard to toss the ball around or, you know, maybe garden a little bit of space. And people are now driving until they can afford it. So Hamiltonians now are spreading out a bit more down to Haldeman or Norfolk or into Niagara. Smithville is growing quickly. So there is capacity to add more family homes in the Hamilton area. The problem is there are delays too much at the municipal and provincial level. There's a lot of red tape that slows things down It makes things more expensive, and you can't have a one-size-fits-all solution. Where are those delays? Uh, Because I know
0: oftentimes it can be with zoning issues. Uh, They get held up at the Ontario Municipal Board sometimes if somebody complains about this. Uh, There are some cities, obviously, that are are in a quandary as to how they want to see that growth occur. Does it it mean expansion of city limits? Does it mean greenfield development? Does it mean going up instead of uh, out? Uh, A lot of questions to be answered here, and and the government's got to play a role in that, I would think. I I know they've got the places to grow uh, program and, and that was wonderful. It's an award-winning idea about how this province should grow in the next little while. But it's it's how you apply that. The, 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 the old adage, I guess, the devil's in the details.
3: Yeah. So there's a whole range of things that government can do. We've already talked about allowing more local decision-making to support the local character of the community, not a one-size-fits-all straitjacket. It can intensify along rail lines. We're getting more go service, for example, so allow building up there. There's housing called the missing middle, sort of like stacked townhouses, townhomes, uh, semi-detached, places that are actually really good for empty nesters who still want to live in the Hamilton area, stay near the grandkids, but they can move out of the family home into this missing middle category, and that frees up a family home for a new couple that's starting out. There's another example. And, um, you know, lastly, uh, on um, on this topic is just to allow a greater, a greater balance. So you asked me what the delays are, it's really a pile up of stuff. So it's places to grow, the straightjacket on planning, you have city approvals, conservation authority approvals, provincial approvals, and it can be honest to goodness, 10 years to get a new subdivision plan these days in our province. So let's speed up the process, and it's been a big part of our focus in dealing with the province.
0: What about vacant properties? This is something way back when I was on city council that we'd burn my, you know, <laughs> Uh, people actually get a tax break. And I understand why that started. That was way, way back when, when we were in a de- uh, an economic depression almost, and people were saying, look, at, him, I, you know, we can't do anything about this. Uh, that's not the situation so much anymore. I mean, would that encourage people to start using some vacant properties and effective reuse into residential as opposed to just sitting
3: there and getting a tax break? Yeah, that's a great point. It's another one that we've, we've put. There's some outdated laws that may have made sense in the 80s or the downturn in the 90s where you give people tax breaks to leave buildings empty. That doesn't make sense in 2017 when people are moving into Hamilton and droves. So can we convert those more into housing? And Vancouver did do a vacancy tax where people simply were sitting on homes or dark corridors and condo buildings, a whole hallway has nobody in it. They did put a tax to encourage them either to be sold or to put into rental so you're using the space. The other thing too, and I only got about a minute left here, but I I love the idea that you keep bringing up here about
0: variety. Uh, because we can't necessarily assume that everybody who wants to m- move out of the house as an empty nester uh, wants to go into a condo uh, and just live in a high-rise someplace. That's not for everybody. And some people just don't want that. They still want the backyard. They still want a bit of property. And they're the ones that are uh,
3: apparently, from what I'm being told, that are looking for those houses, and there's not a whole lot of them out there. Yeah, exactly. And then they stay at home. So this happened to you know us in... Um, Our our old place that um, a lot of our neighbors said, well, they would like to move, but they can't find it, and the taxes are very high, so they stay put and renovate their home. And as a result, a starter home for a young family doesn't get onto the market in the first place.
0: Uh, You're in town today. Who are you talking to?
3: Well, Bill Kelly on CHML. Are you kidding me? That's why I'm here. I'm going to see The Spectator and Channel 14 as well in a meeting with some of our uh, past presidents of the Real Estate Association. Just There's no better way for me to find out what's happening on the ground than to talk to, talk to actual real-life realtors who are there every day.
0: Well, listen, I hope that uh, you have the ear of the uh, the government as they go forward on this, because this is a pretty important issue, and obviously what they propose next month is uh, is going to be a key element, I think, in how this is going to roll out over the next couple of years. Great to
3: see you again. Tim. Great Thanks to for coming you, Bill. You bet. Thank you. Have a good weekend. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: The uh, former National Security Advisor to uh, President Donald Trump, Michael Flynn, is uh, talking with House and Senate Intelligence Committees in regards to the Russia investigation. Now, you may remember that uh, Mr. Flynn was fired by the president because of, uh, well, he was not forthcoming. That seemed to be the innuendo anyway from President Trump. Not forthcoming about his uh, ties and his relationship with Russia uh, during his interview process, so he canned him. Well, it seems as if there's a lot more going on. Here's the rub, though. Flynn says uh, if he's going to have to answer questions, he wants immunity from prosecution. Why would you ask for immunity from prosecution? That's Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Laura. How are you doing today?
2: I'm well, Bill. I'm I'm about to board a plane, so if there's an airline announcement in the background, I apologize in advance to your audience.
0: (laughs) Don't miss the plane, whatever you do. (laughs) I won't. Uh, You've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating again. You can't write this stuff, can you?
2: No, you know what? The best spy novel in the world doesn't have this many twists. I mean, you, you can't even go to bed early at a decent hour in Trump land and not miss some major breaking news. It's just un- it's unbelievable. And last night, as soon as this came out, that that Flynn was asking for immunity. I mean, it, it just was a firestorm because not only is it a is it major in the sense that there might finally be somebody close to the Trump inner circle who's willing to tell a story, a story that the whole world is riveted about, but also the fact that not just a few months back, he was saying that anyone in Hillary Clinton's camp who took immunity around the emails obviously, you know, was guilty of something, and Donald Trump's the same as a candidate. Why would you ask for immunity unless you'd committed a crime? So here we have not only Flynn, according to news reports, saying that he wants this immunity before he testifies, but you've got Donald Trump, tweeting out this morning saying it's just a big witch hunt, so he thinks Flynn should take immunity. So these two guys are choking on their words. And it's almost an alternative state of reality for people who are watching the exchange. And I must say, after Trump tweeted that, Adam Schiff, who's the head of the House Intel Committee that's been so damaged in this Nunes scandal, he tweeted back and said, the question, Mr. President, is why did you keep him around so long after you found out what he had done? Something to that effect. So now we've got... Sort of these top players tweeting each other back and forth. It, you, it's hard to keep up with this stuff, Bill.
0: Well, especially because this the revelation. Again, we saw this on social media, but it also, which is fake news, I understand that. Anything that seems to, to contradict anything Trump says is just branded as fake news. But there's a, a story going around yesterday, Laura, that Nunes is actually getting his direction from the White House on how to carry out the investigation.
2: Well, exactly. So, I mean, people might think, well, what are these two things have to do with each other? It's all, it's all very complex, and that's why even a spy novel, I don't think, could come up with this many intricacies in the plot line. But basically, yesterday, the, the bombshell preceding the Flynn bombshell, if I can just finish on the Flynn thing for one second, Bill, sure. what is so interesting... About this Flynn situation is that last night you had I think Lou Dobbs and others saying oh it's fake news fake news Flynn's not going to ask for immunity and then this morning the president's like yeah you should ask for immunity so I mean even the attempts at spinning it as fake news last night seemed to have been blown out of the water by the president so I mean it, it, it's not even they can't even get their fake news narrative together anymore right they're all over the map but when it comes to Nunes. What is so interesting here is that as the chief of the Intel Committee of the House, he does have the right to look at these classified documents anywhere he chooses to. But if he is going to look at these documents on White House grounds, a White House person has to sign him in. And so he was saying, you know, making it sound like some whistleblower showed him this stuff, and he had to rush over to the White House and do this big press conference last week, and it seemed as though what he was trying to do was give some sort of cover for Donald Trump's tweets about the wiretapping allegations against Obama. It seemed like, oh, wait a second, there is something there. Well, then it comes out that... Well, actually, he was doing that, looking at those documents on the White House grounds. So then people started to ask, well, then why did you have to rush back and do a big show that you were informing the president? Because anything on the White House grounds he would have had access to before you saw it. And so then he still wouldn't release who it was who let him in, and the White House was acting as though the story didn't add up. And then, of course, the investigative journalism came out and found the two people who let Nunes in to look at these documents, and they are people who work in the White House. So it looks as though the White House Provided the information to the chair of the intelligence committee so that he could run back, make it look as though there was some some backing to Donald Trump's tweet about the wire, the wire tapping. Uh, but the whole thing was done in such a way that if it was an attempt at a cover up, it was it was terribly flawed, and so it has made the whole thing look worse. It's made the House Intelligence Committee distrust the chair. They've stopped hearings, including one that was supposed to have Sally Yates. Remember that mm-hmm. that uh, acting Attorney General that Trump fired a couple of weeks into his presidency she was supposed to testify her hearing got canceled by nunes so people are wondering is he acting at the behest of the white house is the investigation compromised and that has resulted in the senate now saying you know what we're going to we're going to be the adults in this and we're going to take over so i don't think donald trump if he is trying to get one investigation stopped or cover one email over here or one tweet over here i don't think he realizes that you know the senate can be a very serious, very powerful body, and they're not about to be tripped or they're not about to be misled.
0: Well, the other card in this uh, wild and crazy uh, deck right now, too, of course, is the FBI, which we're told is also carrying out their investigation. We've had little snippets of information from time to time, but uh, James Comey is still in the picture right now, and he's kicking the tires to see what's happening here, too. And uh, I, I, if there's one thing that's become evident over the last couple of months, I, the president and the White House simply can't control the FBI here.
2: Well, what's really interesting is in the Comey testimony that just blew the roof off, which is, I believe, a week ago, Monday. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago. But two things came out of that. Comey said definitively that, that Trump's wiretap tweets were false. They, they were not backed up or substantiated. That was pretty devastating. The second thing Comey said was that they were, in fact, doing an active investigation into whether or not there was collusion between the Trump camp and the Russians. And so what happens after that? Of course, everything blows up. Everything, all the pressure comes on the White House. And now, you know, they're looking back at the video of an interview the president did and then a a press conference Sean Spicer did, where they both said, just wait, just wait. There'll be other stuff coming out. And then, of course, the Nunes spectacle, right? So if that was an attempt to somehow compromise the committee, to make it stop or to... Stop the wiretap uh, comments by Comey from gaining traction, whatever it was, it's ju- you know, something's rotten in the state of Washington. And people are looking at it, no matter what side you're on, whether you like Trump or not, his approval ratings now are the lowest, I think, of any president that's been recorded at this time in their, in their time in office. And, and I think it's because a lot of Americans who liked him on the economy and wanted an alternative are looking at this chaos, going, come on now, it's not even 100 days. You know, they can't get anything right, and they seem to be under this perpetual cloud of, if not conspiracies, and attempts to cover up. It, it really looks bad. Optically, it's terrible.
0: Well, and I know that some people feel uncomfortable with drawing the analogy between Watergate and what hap- or could be going on here right now. But, but I think it's, it's instructive to look at what happened there and, and to go back to the old adage that it's, it's not so much the crime, it's the cover-up that that's usually does you in in a situation like this. And uh, they're not doing a very good job of, of trying to, you know, the art of deflection and whatever else they're trying to do to get people away from this idea, but the possible uh, collusion that went on between Russia somebody in Russia, whether it's Putin himself or somebody else, and the Trump team.
2: But it's really interesting because the Watergate analogy I mean one of the Watergate reporters, Bernstein, has gone on and said you know he 's going to call this tantamount to Watergate. He really feels since then there's been nothing no gates you know that have come to this level, but this one does, and the reason is is, is the drip 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 of what looks like cover up right the meetings that were not uh, and that were not disclosed i mean you 've got the Attorney General not saying that he met with the russian with the Russian ambassador. Why not you know you 've got Flynn saying that he didn't have these meetings with Russia and then gets fired for, you know, supposedly not being honest with the vice president about them. If there was nothing wrong going on, why all of the subterfuge? Why all of the obfuscating? It is, the devil is in the cover-up. And so, you know, if there was, some talks with Russia, ill-timed around sanctions, or it was Trump's new way of negotiating with, you know, it it probably could have been sold. As we said, we were going to do things differently. This is how we're doing them differently. But it's the not disclosing them when asked under oath. It's the not being transparent about meetings. Uh, It's Trump saying no one that he knew had these dealings. And yet, you know, one after another, his team are being called in front of this Senate investigation, including his son-in-law, for taking meetings. And, and, you know, we heard FBI Director Comey say whether it's the Russian ambassador or one of these oligarchs who works with the Kremlin, it doesn't matter to the FBI. They know how it works in Russia and they know what's going on. So, you know, it, it is it is much Watergate in the sense of the drip, 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 drip. You know, it was a started off as a stupid partisan hacking job uh, and you know, or breaking into the DNC at the Watergate Hotel, and it blew up into the point where Nixon had to resign because he had just lost so much credibility. Uh, so who knows what will happen in the Trump world, but I seem to recall Watergate taking a lot longer to get to this point when I looked at the history book bill than this has taken. We're at, what, day 67 or something?
0: Yeah, and and that was early in, in the second uh, term, of course, of Richard Nixon that this started right. to fall apart, but it was quite some time before the Washington Post was even believed. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of work that went on there, and uh, well, I guess anybody who saw the movie could probably remember that too. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein were having problems getting uh, credibility, even from their editors, let alone from uh, the 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 pushback they were getting from the Nixon administration and from the Washington uh, group there. That just think, well, that could never happen in a country like this. Are we are we as skeptical now as we were back then, or have we just uh, kind of fallen into this this feeling of that? Oh, no, they, this this can't be happening. Uh, just because there's so many Americans right now that still buy into this idea that this is fake news, notwithstanding the fact that you've got credible organizations that have validated some of these accusations. Uh, I, I found one of the most troubling polls I saw last week was a number of Americans that voted for Trump that said, yeah, we know he lies to us, but we still like him.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I watched a focus group uh, of a group that of Trump supporters that repeatedly get uh, interviewed on CNN about what they're believing at the time. And you know, as you might expect, a lot of them were saying, well, Russia's not that bad. And, and, you know, why are we all obsessed about Russia? And and one woman said, let's just let this Russia stuff go away and let Trump be president. You know, this, this kind of idea of even though they're not buying into all of this as being a legitimate concern, they are aware that it is slowing down Trump's ability to put his agenda through. And so but if you look at the poll that came out about his 35 percent approval rating, he dropped, I think, ten points amongst white people. And he dropped in he dropped in those kind of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin constituencies that weren't die hard, his base of thirty percent. They were the ten percent, fifteen percent who said, Hey, you know what? Uh, we don't like Hillary or we don't like our economy, let's give this this guy a shot. Let's try something new. I said on election day America went for the experimental drug therapy over the tried tested regime of, of, of you know of medicine. And so I think those people now have buyers remorse, right? And so so if Trump is at 35, and I mean, some presidents never even got anywhere near that low, and others it took bad wars and other things to get there thousands of days in. Uh, If he's at that level, if only his base is behind him, that's simply not enough for him to get support from Republicans in the House or the Senate, because they know they need more than Trump's base to get reelected themselves. So he is now fighting with the Freedom Caucus on Twitter. He is now fighting with the likes of McCain and these others who are calling him out on the Russia stuff. He is really becoming isolated. And that's, an, that's another sort of Nixonian uh, trend that we saw is Nixon became increasingly isolated from support.
0: Well, we saw that last week with the health care bill, didn't we? Where Republicans are the ones that defeated the bill for all intents and purposes. Uh, that's uh, in a stalemate right now. That's not probably going to happen anytime soon where they're going to come back with a revision of that. He's still got a budget to pass right now, and the Republicans are making the same noises. They're distancing themselves from the Trump White House right now, and that, that's going to make it virtually impossible for him to try to carry through with his his agenda.
2: What I think is so interesting is that he looks at everything transactionally, right? Like, what can you do for me now? What can I say now to get you to do what I want? These are lifers. These are people who have been on the public purse, some of them, not the Freedom Caucus, or Tea Party or new guys, but some of these guys, like Mitch McConnell and others, they've been playing this Washington game in McCain for decades. They know absolutely how to stay in their nice, powerful jobs, and they're not about to let this guy come in and ruin what they've got going on. And so they're looking at these polls, even if Trump is calling them fake news polls. They're looking at the support. They're looking at a, a, pro- a president who's becoming a paper tiger. you know. And and that is, uh, I think, the last thing that Trump wants to be. And how does he get across his agenda, except for executive orders, which he has some, some ability to do unless the courts stop them. And there are going to be court actions against a lot of his executive orders. We've seen two of his executive orders already get stopped in the courts on his immigration ban, uh, on his travel ban. So, I mean, he can't do as much as he probably thinks that he can. And these guys, if they don't think that he's a winner for them in their re-election, why would they get behind him on this? And we saw that on the health care bill.
0: How far and how long and how tightly did they squeeze Flynn at this stage to get him before that Senate committee?
2: Well, you know what? It sounds as though Flynn, I mean, no, I'm not not, uh, someone to read into the guy's motives in his mind, but he was Trump's wingman all through the campaign. He was the guy who calmed him, reportedly. He's the guy who went everywhere with him. And he was the guy who was sacrificed early on in, in a very public and painful way. So there's a possibility that Flynn wants to, you know, the proverbial sing like a canary. There's also the possibility that he wants to go in front and say nothing bad happened and try to protect his reputation. And Trump's, we'll have to see. But I think that they're going to get him soon. And I think they're going to get him soon because the longer this builds, the worse it is for everybody. You know, and I do public relations bill. And just the suspicion that you're part of what John McCain came close to saying could be a treasonous conspiracy. Uh, Just the suspicion that you're working against your country or that you're colluding with a geopolitical enemy is not going to help you for the rest of your life. So these guys want to get ahead of this as fast as they can.
0: Laura, you got a plane to catch. I'll let you go. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Doug. Take care. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group.
3: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.